This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, media outlets in Russia have been harassed and their offices shuttered. We talked to the president of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, which is funded by Congress, on how they're getting information about the war to the Russian people. Then, was ruling out a no-fly zone over Ukraine a mistake? The risks of a no-fly zone and the messaging of U.S. intentions. And Americans have been increasing their reliance on electricity, the health of our nation's electrical power grid. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty is funded by Congress through the U.S. Agency for Global Media, an independent federal agency. Broadcasting in 27 languages to 23 countries, they're the free press many countries lack. Jamie Fly is president and CEO of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and he's based in Prague. Jamie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So start by telling us the mission of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and how long it's been around. So we've been broadcasting uh, for more than 70 years. We were set up uh, several years after the Second World War. Uh, and our mission is to serve audiences in countries where freedom of the press either does not exist or where it's under assault. And so we're operating in parts of Europe uh, and Central Asia and parts of the Middle East where there uh, is not a tradition of vibrant independent media. And we try to fill that void uh, to be a neutral, independent news outlet for audiences. And how have you evolved since the end of the Cold War? Since the end of the Cold War, a lot of things changed for us. Uh, we moved here to Prague. We were based in Munich, Germany during most of the Cold War. And we uh, transitioned away from being primarily a radio news organization uh, to being a multimedia news organization, to getting into TV programming. Uh, we have a 24-7 Russian language TV network called Current Time Now. Many of our individual language services do significant uh, TV programming. Um, but more and more, we're interacting with audiences online uh, on digital platforms. So providing uh, news and information through websites, uh, through all the major social media platforms that are popular across our coverage region. So you had been operating in Russia until recently. What happened? You know, so we've been serving Russian audiences for our entire uh, seven decades of existence. Uh, we've had journalists working inside Russia for more than 30 years. We've had a bureau in Moscow since 1991. Uh, but we faced increasing pressure from the Kremlin even before uh, the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, our journalists being harassed, our journalists, journalists being labeled essentially as spies, as so-called foreign agents. Uh, and uh, we, we got into a legal dispute with the Kremlin where they were fining us for failure to comply with some of uh, this foreign agent, uh, these regulations that they had established. So in the wake of that and in the wake of the invasion uh, in Ukraine uh, and the growing pressure on journalists, the fact that for reporting the facts about Ukraine, you can face now potentially 15 years in prison, we decided to suspend operations at our Mos Moscow bureau uh, and, and to limit the reporting that we're doing from Russia just because of the risks that journalists currently face in the country. 
So is there any way now that Russians can access your broadcasts and, and get access to information? So we're still producing content uh, from our headquarters here in Prague. Uh, we've moved some of our Russian journalists outside of the country to Prague and to other locations to make sure that they can still do programming for Russian audiences. Uh, and we're providing that information uh, still online. Our websites are now blocked in the last several weeks, like those of many news organizations. But Russians can use circumvention technology, virtual private networks, uh, mirror websites that are constantly changing URLs uh, to access our content. And even though our websites have been blocked for the last few weeks, we're still seeing record numbers of Russians come to us uh, to find out what's going on in the war, to find out the broader implications of this war on their economic situation, uh, and to interact with our content uh, through many of the platforms they were able to use before the war. I was going to ask if you had any metrics. Um, do you know that that information is getting through and is it having an impact on Russians? So we certainly are able to track traffic uh, to our sites uh, despite the, the websites being blocked. Um, we also are able to interact with our audiences um, in, in environments like this in Russia where we have less access now on the ground. We often turn to user-generated content, so asking our audiences to actually submit videos, uh, to submit tips uh, that they might pick up uh, that we can then do additional reporting based upon and then share back with the broader audience. And that sort of dialogue with the audience has continued um, despite these attempts at censorship. So we do know that there's a certain segment of Russians that are hungry for this information, that are willing to take risks to engage with our content and even at times uh, to send us information. And you have reporters on the ground in Ukraine, in many cases reporting from the front lines. What are they telling you about conditions there in Ukraine? So we've got uh, a very large Ukrainian uh, language service that has operated for decades uh, in Ukraine. Uh, our largest bureau is actually in Kyiv. We've moved many of our journalists uh, to another part of Ukraine where they can operate safely. But we do have some field reporters who are out on a daily basis covering the fighting, uh, both highlighting what's going on from a military perspective, but then also interviewing uh, civilians about the impact on them and their hometowns, uh, as many of them have had to flee. Uh, and so it's a very dangerous situation. Um, we have journalists who have been covering conflict in Ukraine and the fighting since 2014. Uh, but this is a completely different level of conflict where the front lines are constantly shifting. And so from a journalist perspective, it's incredibly dangerous. Uh, even if you are embedded with security forces, uh, you never quite know where the front lines are. And there's also some disturbing reports just in the last few days that the Russians, as they take over certain territory, are actually targeting journalists, uh, in some cases shooting at them, but in others uh, detaining them. Uh, as part of a concerted effort to suppress uh, information about what is truly happening in, in Ukraine. Jamie, do you think you'll ever be able to go back to Russia and, and start reporting from there again and, and open that bureau in Moscow? We, we certainly hope so. And uh, when you look at our history, where we operated for decades from afar often, broadcasting to countries where we had no access on the ground, uh, we now uh, are operating in bureaus in most of those places. Our journalists live side by side with our audiences. Our headquarters here in Prague is in a city where it was for decades illegal for us to operate. 
where we went to great lengths to try to get news and information into what was then Czechoslovakia from Germany. And now we have 700 employees here in Prague alone uh, providing news and information uh, to 23 countries every day. Uh, and so uh, taking that long view, we're confident that one day we'll be able to reopen our bureau in Moscow and we'll certainly continue to report from inside Russia using technology and using new arrangements with, with freelancers going forward. All right, well, Jamie, I appreciate you taking the time and good luck to you and to all the reporters that you have there. It's great to be with you, thank you. Coming next, was ruling out a no-fly zone over Ukraine a mistake? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Ukrainian President Zelensky has asked the United States many times to declare a no-fly zone over his country. So far, the answer has been no. Taking that option off the table was a mistake. According to Raphael Cohen, he's the director of the Strategy and Doctrine Program of RAND's Project Air Force. Rafi, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. So first explain to us the details of how a no-fly zone over Ukraine would work. Sure. So uh, a no-fly zone would be a coercive measure by the uh, United States and presumably with its NATO allies. It would basically uh, tell the Russians that anyone, any Russian aircraft that violates Ukrainian airspace would be shot down. Um, as multiple commentators have noted, this would be akin to an act of war. Um, so it needs to be taken seriously. That said, as I argued in my op-ed, I think taking it off the table entirely is a mistake. The American troops would be required to institute a no-fly zone because you would need actual troops on the ground in Ukraine to do this, right? Not necessarily. Um, you would need. You only would need aircraft flying over Ukraine to execute this. Um, I mean, there's a variety of different ways you can uh, execute it, and I'm not going to talk too much the operational specifics. So American officials have categorically rejected a no-fly zone. Is your argument that it's the wrong strategy, or is it a messaging problem? It shouldn't have been announced openly. The more the latter than the former. Um, so I think it's important to understand that there are two questions here. Uh, one, should the United States take options off the table a priori? Um, and two, is it a good idea to implement a no-fly zone right here and right now? And I think you can believe the, that the latter answer is no. The former answer is, however, is a mistake, which I do. Uh, and the real argument for that is sort of threefold. First off, we don't know what kind of actions Russians are going to take over the next couple of weeks um, or a couple of months. Uh, so whatever red lines we have vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, the Russians very well may cross them. In fact, the intelligence community has already said as much that Russia is likely to double down. Second, by taking uh, American leverage off the table a priori by these grand statements, we lose leverage and we lose the ability to try to coerce Russia into a peaceful diplomatic settlement, which is what we all want. And then third, uh, by saying that the United States won't implement no-fly zones in this context, largely because of Russian nuclear capabilities, you signal to the rest of the world and all the other nefarious actors in the world that the United States will not uh, use military force when uh, 
if you have a nuclear trump card in your back pocket, then that's a very dangerous message to send to the world. I wanted to ask you about that because, um, you know, it, it does, I guess it would send a message to North Korea and Iran, um, but it's true. I mean, once somebody has a nuclear weapon, uh, the, the calculations differ. Sure, the calculations do differ. Um, you do have to be more cautious about it. Um, there are times when you would want to still use military force. Uh, and it's not, I think, in the United States' best interest to say what all to message so quite as clearly as like, if you have this, then we will not do that, um, because that just encourages bad behavior. You say, uh, Rafi, in your op-ed, quote, while a no-fly zone policy incurs significant risks, there are several steps on the escalatory ladder between that and World War III. What are those steps, and are they worth the risk? Sure. So um, the steps are basically, one, the, uh, the Russians would have to choose to challenge it. Um, that that's a choice on their part. Second, we would have to choose it to shoot the Russian aircraft down. And then third, the question is, does violence from there become sort of tit for tat and localized to Ukraine? Or does it spiral into a larger conflict? Now, the possibility of spiraling into a larger conflict is real. Um, there's also arguments, however, to say that you would want to keep, that both sides would want to keep the conflict localized to Ukraine, if nothing else, to prevent the mutual annihilation. Um, you know, political scientists will talk about how nuclear weapons will have sort of grandiose stability, i.e., both countries will not try to destroy each other, but you still will get these sort of smaller conflicts. Um, so you may very well see that latter dynamic play out rather than a priori go to World War III, like some of the rhetoric has, has suggested they would. How good are Ukraine's air defenses currently, and how destructive has Russia's air power actually been? Sure. So uh, Ukrainian air defenses are uh, performing far better than, I think, any Western analysts anticipated prior to the conflict. Um, the fact that Russia has not been able to gain air superiority, I think, is both testament to the Ukrainian air defenses, on the one hand, um, probably also testament to the fact that the VKAs as the Russian Air Force is not quite as good as we thought they were. Um, so in that sense, from an operational perspective, you can make an argument saying that a no-fly zone isn't needed right now. Uh, that's different than the messaging and the sort of public policy perspective. Is there any military support that the U.S. could give to Ukraine that it hasn't already? Yes. So, um, some people so are talking about drones as well. Yeah, so there's, there's a drones question. There's also, uh, there's been discussion about transferring uh, Slovakia's S-300 um, and Turkey's S-400 systems. These are Russian air defense systems. What those would allow uh, the Ukrainians to do is to shoot down aircraft that are at a higher altitude and farther away uh, than what they currently have, which, you know, the Stinger is a great system, but it is designed primarily for short-range air defense. Um, so, you can talk about longer range air defenses, so which would be sort of the next step in uh, protecting uh, the skies. All right, Rafi, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you uh, coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Coming next, new stresses on the electrical grid are making it increasingly unreliable. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why that's likely to get worse and what can be done about it. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The electrical power grid is less reliable than it used to be. Major disruptions and power outages have increased over the past 20 years. 
just as more Americans are becoming more reliant on electricity. Catherine Blunt is a reporter for The Wall Street Journal. She covers renewable energy and utilities. Catherine, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So electrical power plants are largely owned and operated by private companies. What's the role of the federal government in ensuring reliability of the grid? Yeah, so um, about 20 years ago, a number of regions undertook efforts to deregulate um, the power sector. And by, and by that, I mean break up um, legacy utilities to make it so that these, as you say, private companies could own power plants and produce power. And in doing that, um, the, you know, the federal government over, um, took a larger role and making sure that the, the grid remained reliable during this transition, and it has that role to this day. So it's the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that's tasked with making sure that um, you do see that stability and reliability in, in different regions, uh, except for Texas, which is not subject to that oversight. The transmission and distribution system is quite old. Is that being upgraded and replaced, or should there just be a transition to renewable energy sources? Well, I think that both things need to happen at the same time, um, and both things are happening at the same time. So we are seeing a very rapid shift to renewable energy sources um, uh, to reduce carbon emissions, and uh, you know it's also just uh, wind and solar power, some of the cheapest forms of generation right now, so a lot of this is market-driven. Um, at the same time, a lot of the uh, different components of the grid are decades old, and in some cases, perhaps even 100 years old, when you think about um, the build-out of the, the transmission system, which is really the backbone of the grid. Um, some of it was built before World War II. So utility companies and, and others are investing in trying to replace some of that infrastructure to support not only the transition, but just to make it so that the system is more resilient um, in light of stronger storms and, and other things that are driven by climate change. And so uh, we also have a, a situation in which we're, uh, electric, electricity demand is expected to increase quite a bit in the coming years as more consumers adopt electric vehicles uh, do more to electrify their homes and so the grid also needs to be bolstered to support that additional demand well as you said climate change is having an effect on the electrical grid since a lot of the transmission lines are overhead and not underground are the new lines being put underground there are some proposals to put uh, lines underground but that's not at this point an especially common proposal and part of the, the big reason for that is cost it's uh, largely expensive to, to retrofit the overhead system to um, to run underground, and then it's also you, there's a you have to have a different approach to maintenance when you do that because it involves digging. If there's an issue, um, generally speaking, it's it's simply not something that most utilities have chosen to adopt at scale, uh, with uh, one exception, which is PG&E in California is attempting to bury a lot of wires to reduce wildfire risk. So, what's the plan then besides the um, burying of of cables? Um, what's the plan to improve the resiliency of the electrical grid against those well, climate disasters? I mean, a big part of it is, is um, re replacing existing, existing equipment with equipment that is stronger, uh, more modern. Um, and there are technologies, uh, too, that can be adopted to you know, help um, restore power more quickly after faults, other things along those lines. But um, when you think about it, I mean, it's just when you think about a transmission line that was built 100 years ago, and this is an extreme example, but the technology was completely different. The types of materials were completely different. And so we have um, better options today and utilities are working very hard to make it so that the system is more modernized. So let's talk about uh, renewables like wind and solar. Um, utility companies are looking at battery storage for when the sun goes down or it's not windy enough. Where are we on the technology to support that capability? 
Yeah, so battery technology has improved a lot in the last several years, and it's also become a lot more cost-effective. So um, utilities are moving very quickly to um, adopt more large-scale storage applications, really large grid-scale batteries, uh, as you say, to, to store intermittent power and dispatch it when it's needed. Now, at this time, most of these batteries store power four hours, uh, or rather discharge it for four hours. So that gives you a solution if, you know, there's a, you say in the evening when solar power generation goes down, uh, perhaps in California, these batteries could play a large role in, in helping the grid through that, um, through that evening period in which demand is high, but power production is lower. Now, most grid operators across the country agree that lo longer duration storage is really going to be critical as more renewable energy comes online because there could be periods of time in which there's really low wind and solar output, maybe for the, over the course of several days, making it so that you do need those, um, those longer duration batteries to carry you through that kind of challenge. And that technology is underway. There are several companies with some very interesting solutions that is, uh, and they're approaching commercialization, but it's still early days and it's gonna take a while for that technology to be deployed at scale. So, Catherine, what impact do you think the bipartisan infrastructure deal will have on improving the reliability of the grid? Is there funding going towards that? Yeah, there's, there, there is funding going towards that, and, and they can only help. Um, you know, some of it is, is uh, encouraged to, um, is, is dedicated to upgrading and expanding the transmission system, which is going to be very critical in, um, when you consider where we're building wind and solar farms, right? A lot of it is in more remote areas uh, with large expanses of land. We need more wires to carry that power to population centers. And um, as we were talking about earlier, there needs to be funding for upgrades. So it's it's uh, the infrastructure bill doesn't do as much as um, certain proponents were hoping to modernize the system, but it, it, it does, it's a start. All right. Well, Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service? It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, 
back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen 4, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.